Well, good evening, and thanks for tuning in to uh, our message for this week, April the 3rd, Sunday, 2011. This is Pastor Jeff Tunnel, and I'm going to keep this real simple. This Sunday, we're having a, a meal in place of our regular service, actually having a turkey dinner and sit down. Uh, the life groups are, have prepared the meal. <clears throat> They've uh, made some turkey and gravy and all the trimmings that would go with that. So uh, we're going to join in the sanctuary and sit down to a meal, but it's for a very specific purpose. I was uh, reading in Matthew recently and, and just picked up on a couple of uh, simple thoughts. Uh, when Jesus was instituting what we call the Last Supper or the Communion, and in Matthew 26, verse 26, it's written, as And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, and this is my body. <clears throat> Pardon me. And then he took the cup and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And what impressed upon me was the first part of verse 26 where it says, and as they were eating. <clears throat> and I began to look into the issue of how they celebrated this meal together and discovered what what I think is a very insightful, it could be startling, uh, not revelation, but insight and teaching about the early disciples and how they really did this meal together. Many have called it the agape feast or the love feast. Uh, the word I find used often in commentaries is it was a festive meal. And this festive idea, I thought, well, what, is, what really is festive? Festive is probably not at your house every evening when you have dinner at five after you get off work and it's just the family gathering around us. That's, that's dinner. But a festive meal would be more of a celebration time. Friends and family gathered together, sharing a meal, and for some maybe popular reason or um, exciting idea, or uh, if we use the word festive, we might think of a festival, uh, kind of a party atmosphere or fiesta for some. <clears throat> and I, I uh, began to investigate this and actually picked up a book called uh, pagan Christianity with a question mark after the word Christianity uh, posing the question are we celebrating mostly a pagan Christianity it was written by Frank Viola and George Barna uh, published by Tyndall and I find this section called the Lord's Supper let me just read it to you I don't want to bore you with this but this is what's on my mind this week it says Rivers of blood have been shed at the hands of Protestant and Catholic Christians alike over the doctrinal intricacies related to Holy Communion. The Lord's Supper, once precious and living, became the center of theological debate for centuries. Tragically, it moved from a dramatic and concrete picture of Christ's body and blood to a study in abstract and metaphysical thought. We cannot concern ourselves with the theological minutiae that surround the Lord's Supper in this book. But clearly, Protestants, as well as Catholics, do not practice the Supper the way it was observed in the first century. <clears throat> For the early Christians, <clears throat> the Lord's Supper was a festive communal meal. The mood was one of celebration and joy. 
When believers first gathered for the meal, they broke the bread and passed it around. Then they ate their meal, which then concluded after the cup was passed around. The Lord's Supper was essentially a Christian banquet, and there was no clergyman to officiate. Today, tradition has forced us to take the supper as a tongue-tickling thimble of grape juice and a tiny, tasteless, bite-sized cracker. The supper is often taken in an atmosphere of solemnity. We are told to remember the horrors of our Lord's death and to reflect on our sins. In addition, tradition has taught us that taking the Lord's Supper can be a dangerous thing. Thus, many contemporary Christians would never take communion without an ordained clergyman present. Often they point to 1 Corinthians 11, 27-33. In verse 27, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul does warn believers not to participate in the Lord's Supper, quote, unworthily, end quote. In this instance, however, he appears to have been speaking to church members who were dishonoring the supper by not waiting for their poor brothers to eat with them, as well as those who were gathering to get drunk on the wine. So why was the full meal replaced with a ceremony including only the bread and the cup? Here's the story. In the first and early second centuries, the early Christians called the Lord's Supper the Love Feast. At that time, they took the bread and cup in the context of a festive meal. But around the time of Tertullian, the bread and the cup began to be separated from the meal. By the late second century, this separation was complete. Some scholars have argued that the Christians dropped the meal because they wanted to keep the Eucharist from becoming profaned by the participation of unbelievers. This may be partly true, but it is likely that the growing influence of pagan religious ritual removed the supper from the joyful, down-to-earth, non-religious atmosphere of a meal in someone's living room. By the 4th century, the love feast was prohibited among Christians. With the abandonment of the meal, the terms breaking of bread and Lord's Supper disappeared. The common term for the now truncated ritual using just the bread and the cup, was the Eucharist. Irenaeus, who lived from 130 to 200 AD, was one of the first to call the bread and cup an offering. After him, it began to be called the offering or the sacrifice. The altar table where the bread and cup were placed came to be seen as an altar where the victim was offered. The supper was no longer a community event. It was rather a priestly ritual that was to be watched at a distance. Throughout the 4th and 5th centuries, there was an increasing sense of awe and dread associated with the table where the sacred Eucharist was celebrated. It became a somber ritual. The joy that had once been a part of this had vanished. The mystique associated with the Eucharist was due to the influence of the pagan mystery religions, which were clouded with superstition. With this influence, the Christians began to ascribe sacred overtones to the bread and the cup. They were viewed as holy objects in and of themselves. Because the Lord's Supper became a sacred ritual, it required a sacred person to administer it. Enter now the priest offering the sacrifice of the Mass. He was believed to have the power to call God down from heaven and confine him to a piece of bread. Around the 10th century, the meaning of the word baby, or body, excuse me, 
changed in Christian literature. Previously, Christian writers used the word body to refer to one of three things. One, the physical body of Jesus. Two, the church. Or three, the bread of the Eucharist. The early church fathers saw the church as a faith community that identified itself by breaking of bread. But by the 10th century, there was a shift in thinking and language. The word body was no longer used to refer to the church. It was only used to refer to the Lord's physical body or the bread of the Eucharist. Consequently, the Lord's Supper became far removed from the idea of the church coming together to celebrate the breaking of bread. The vocabulary change reflected this practice. The Eucharist had ceased to be part of a joyful communal meal, but came to be viewed as sacred on its own, even as it sat on the table. It became shrouded in a religious mist. Viewed with awe, it was taken with glumness by the priest and completely removed from the communal nature of the ecclesia, the church. All of these factors gave rise to the doctrine of transubstantiation. In the 4th century, the belief that the bread and wine changed into the Lord's actual body and blood was explicit. Transubstantiation, however, was the doctrine that gave a theological explanation of how the change occurred. This doctrine was worked out from the 11th through the 13th centuries. With the doctrine of transubstantiation, God's people approached the elements with a feeling of fear. They were reluctant even to approach them. When the words of the Eucharist were uttered, it was believed that the bread literally became God. All of this turned the Lord's Supper into a sacred ritual performed by sacred people and taken out of the hands of God's people. So deeply entrenched was the medieval idea that the bread and cup were a quote offering end quote that even some of the reformers held to it. While contemporary Protestant Christians have discarded the Catholic notion that the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice, they have continued to embrace the Catholic practice of the Supper. Observe a Lord's Supper service often called Holy Communion in most Protestant churches and you will observe the following. The Lord's Supper is a bite-sized cracker or a small piece of bread and a shot glass of grape juice or wine. As in the Catholic Church, it is removed from the meal. The mood is somber and glum, just as it is in the Catholic Church. Congregants are told by the pastor that they must examine themselves with regard to sin before they partake of the elements, a practice that came from John Calvin. <clears throat> like the Catholic priest, many pastors will sport clerical robes for the occasion, but always the pastor administers the supper and recites the words of institution, This is my body before dispensing the elements to the congregation. With only a few minor tweaks, all of this is medieval Catholicism through and through. Now in the summary of this chapter, Frank Viola states, In the same vein, the Lord's Supper, when separated from its proper context of a full meal, turns into a strange pagan-like rite. The supper has become an empty ritual officiated by a clergyman rather than a shared life experience enjoyed by the church. It has become a morbid religious exercise rather than a joyous festival, a stale individualistic ceremony 
rather than a meaningful corporate event. As one scholar put it, it is not in doubt that the Lord's Supper began as a family meal or a meal of friends in a private house. The Lord's Supper moved from being a real meal into a symbolic meal. The Lord's Supper moved from bare simplicity to elaborate splendor. The celebration of the Lord's Supper moved from being a lay function to a priestly function. In the New Testament itself, there is no indication that it was the special privilege or duty of anyone to leave the worshiping fellowship in the Lord's Supper. Wow! And so ends this portion on page 197, again from the book Pagan Christianity, with a question mark. This was one of the stimuluses that made me begin to think, wouldn't it be nice to sit down and have a festive meal again and include communion as a part of the meal? In the same way as Matthew 26, 26 states, as they were eating, why not do it the way Jesus did. I'm also excited to experience 1 Corinthians 14.26 where Paul the Apostle is writing about the order of church worship and how things should function in the body. And in verse 23 he says, Therefore if the whole church comes together in one place and then continues what he's talking about by verse 26 it says, How is it then, brothers, Whenever you come together, that is when the whole church gathers. We have life groups that meet in different homes on different days of the week, different times, different uh, makeups. Some women, some men, some mix, some family, some children, youth. All of these life groups, when they come together, we believe that's the whole church at Big Bear Christian Center. We're not the only church, of course, but for us that is the entire body gathered as one. Paul states, how is it then, brothers, when you, whenever you come together this way, as the entire body, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification, that is, for building one another up. And then there are some explicit instructions about using the gifts and how others should judge what's being said. And how that if one gets a revelation while another one is speaking, then let the first one sit down and let the second one give theirs. And he, he's providing a, a, a methodology of order. In verse 31 he says, For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. We also know that just a few verses down, it says God is not the author of disorder or confusion but of peace as in all the churches of the saints so this weekend we take a risk we say let's let the Holy Spirit work through his entire body as we gather in a festive meal and include the communion let's let God as it were by illustration touch the strings on the instrument and play us as he will I believe that God wants to operate the gifts in each individual and we can experience that together as we yield to one another in this service. I'm also excited to see Psalm 68 verses 5 and 6 coming to pass where the psalmist 
stated for us that God is a father of the fatherless and a defender of widows in his holy habitation. It says God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a dry land. Let me just break this open slightly. God takes individuals and puts them in family units. Takes individuals and sets them into life groups who become like a family to them. No one is made to be on their own, be alone. Our American institutions teach us to look out for ourselves, keep ourselves as number one, remain aloof, uh, be very individualistic. The Bible is so different than that. It's filled with the one another commands of Scripture. Love one another, forgive one another, bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. And on and on. I think there are easily more than 50 one another commands in the New Testament. And so when God sets a solitary or a single individual into a family unit, it's so that they can become whole. So that if there are any bondages in their life, they can be set free and brought into prosperity and that's not just material goods or wealth. Prosperity is the all-around goodness of the Lord working in your life. It's the blessing of health and mental well-being. It's the blessing of spiritual growth and maturity. And that can only take place by living in community with others. I'm blessed that God would take the solitary and take the initiative to set us into families. So as all the families of the church gather, the cell groups, the life groups gather, the whole church comes together. We depend on the Holy Spirit to touch us like the strings on an instrument, to play uh, a song or a symphony <coughs> Excuse me, back to himself as a point of worship. 1 Corinthians 14.26, each one participating at the level they can there's a promise in that passage that says that if there's one who is an unbeliever comes in among you that they will end up saying God is in you of a truth because in that moment their heart will be revealed their heart will be made open before themselves that God is in the room and God is talking to them through the various gifts of the body this is an exciting time that we're in and I would uh, thank you for listening to these uh, few words I had to share on the topic. Of course, the event is yet to come. Uh, it's Saturday night. I'm recording this for Sunday and for the week following. And uh, we'll look to put uh, some emphasis on this in the time tomorrow as well so that the life groups throughout the week can enjoy the uh, conversations that will follow about what happened in our midst. We're also celebrating in Deuteronomy 16. 16, where uh, God, we're using the pattern of the Old Testament thought that three times a year the Israelites were to gather where God told them to in the city of God and to bring an offering according to how they've been blessed. This was an idea brought up by one of our members that said, why don't we have a gathering? Why don't we get together? Why don't we bring an offering? And let's just reduce the church debt to zero. Now let's all bring a, an offering not a prescripted one, but one that is in keeping with how God has blessed each individual. We're encouraging the kids to bring their dimes, their quarters, their pennies, to bring something that says, this is how God has blessed me. 
or uh, encouraging families to look at how God has blessed them in these difficult times and to bring something that is a correspondingly uh, sized gift, not monetarily only. Uh, I was joking with somebody tonight. I said, well, if the only thing you've been blessed with is a six-pack of soda, well, then bring one to the Lord. And uh, we've we've made a receptacle there, a, a treasury-type device, uh, and uh, we're going to be bringing those with joy and gladness and well, anything that is accumulated that can be turned into uh, a debt reelection uh, cash flow, then we're going to we're going to take out the church debt, and that's our goal. But we're going to do it together. We're going to do it in proportion to how God's blessed us, and it's not about the money, and it's not really about the food that we'll be eating together in the meal. It's about celebrating the Lord and His goodness to us. I pray that uh, you were there. I hope that you were. If you weren't, we'll do another one soon. I'm sure, and maybe the next one will be a barbecue. Uh, midsummer that would be a lot of fun when it get together outside and enjoy big beer so uh, stay in touch with us so that we can keep you included if you'd like to send us uh, your email or drop us your phone number you can write to us of course at info at bigbearchristiancenter.org and drop us that information so we can include you and keep you up to date in the future again this is pastor jeff tunnel thanking you for your time And I pray that our time together has been blessed. Bye-bye.